Midwifery for the People is a podcast about reimagining the way we approach the entirety of the birthing year. Margot's goal is to combine her radical imagination with her knack for strategizing to bolster the birth revolution and a larger global revolution of feminine consciousness. Midwifery for the People is a production of the Indie Birth Association and IndieBirth.org. No material on this podcast should be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event. Now here's your host, Michael Blackstone. Hey everybody, can you give it a couple minutes see if people notice that I am live? It's been a really long time. And today I have someone hopping on with me, which is really exciting. So while we get settled and wait for them to hop on so I can add them as a host, I wanted to give you a couple indie birth updates. So we have a couple different things. Things I wanted to draw your attention to are we have two different events in October, end of October. One is called Answering the Call to Radical Midwifery, and it's a two-day retreat with me and Marin. And then we also have that same week, later in the week, our three-day Indie Birth Midwifery Skills Workshop. Both of those are really fun in-person opportunities to really dig in and start on your midwifery path. We have so much fun when we do them, and it's just amazing. So I won't say too much more about that. We have links for that in our bio. If you have any questions, you can DM us, and we will definitely answer those. And I'm just waiting for Pacific Birth Institute to be here in the list, so I can add them Let's see them yet. Let's see if they can it's been so long that did it work? It's working. <laughs> Yay! Hello. Can you hear us? I can hear you. I can see. Perfect. You. Yay. Yes, we can. <laughs> How are you today? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Oh, I'm so good. All right. I'm Jessica. Hi, I'm Jessica Johnson. Today I have with me Bethel Belial. This is the chair and president of our board of certified direct entry midwives here in the state of Alaska. Awesome. Hey. Bethel. Nice to meet you finally. Yay. I followed you guys on Indie Birth. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> little fangirl here. <laughs> That's funny. I love it. Cool. I'm excited to have you both here. And yeah, I guess we're just going to see how the conversation unfolds. Like we've talked about, I'm going to record this. So if people are listening on the podcast, now the secret that this was originally an Instagram live. Um, <laughs> and we've got a couple things to talk about today and maybe other stuff will come up that we hadn't even planned for. It's always fun to see what happens. Awesome. Cool. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Pacific Birth Institute, though, as what's the mission? What have you been up to? And I guess I'll just mention that we can. Am I back? You are. Okay. It was, it was my screen time limiter. It said I was out of time for the day. So now <laughs> I'm set. But we met because here at Indie Birth, we had emailed out a blast to midwives all over the country, just looking to connect and yeah, team up on, on whatever kinds of collaborations might just help really 
strengthen and nourish the midwifery community and our our mission and goals and vision at, at Indie Birth. So Jessica, you wrote back and we're psyched to connect and we had a fun little meet and greet tea time session with each other and we were like, we should do more stuff and connect our people. So tell, Absolutely. Us what, yeah. tell us what you do. All right. Yeah, Margo, I'm so excited to be here. I like Bethel fangirling a little bit. Even as professionals that do the same thing, it's so much fun to hang out online with people we follow. So we're glad to be here. My name's Jessica Johnson. I'm the D Director of Development for the Pacific Birth Institute. And so what is the Pacific Birth Institute? It really is an online education platform that also offers in-person skills trainings and then uh, learning opportunities with local midwives for my students to complete um, labor requirements to become certified professional birth assistants. So what is our goal? We're really solution oriented. And so we know we need more midwives. We need more midwives getting caught in the net of midwifery and supported from, I think I want to do this all the way to licensure and then actually staying licensed and staying in practice past seven years. And so we're really focused on how can we build the infrastructure that starts to increase matriculation and then retain midwives and grow that population. And one of the ways that my partner, Jen, and I decided to do that was immediately, just like OBs need nurses, midwives need birth assistants. If a midwife has three birth assistants that are always on call, their ability to increase their client load can almost double every month. And so if we have a huge influx with the pandemic, all of that, of people returning to community birth, and we also know that physicians are not coming into practice, they're retiring at greater rates, then we need to start creating that infrastructure by let's get birth assistants. And hey, what do a lot of birth assistants turn into? Mm -hmm. but, we, but a lot of the student concerns have always been, I cannot commit to 24-7 midwifery. I cannot afford a somewhat funded or not funded meek or non-meek education that may or may not get me past midwifery if I want to go further in education, go into research. And, and a lot of people Quite honestly, Jen and I, the people we created our program for, the Professional Birth Assistant Program, were for our clients. They're all the clients that are like, I want to work in birth, but they have babies, but they have partners that are working out of town half the month, but they have these constraints. And we know right now the infrastructure needs everyone who wants to work in birth to be serving four days a month, one week a month. You know, we need to actually be letting it not be all or none if we want midwifery as a profession and community birth to be safe and supported as this influx over the 21st century increases. So you can tell it's kind of a bigger picture. And then we created a program and a program. <laughs> to solve some of those issues of the different pieces. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I don't know if you saw it. I recently put out, and it originally started just as a newsletter for our newsletter list, and I turned it into an article, and I think I'll probably turn it into a podcast, maybe expand on it at some point. But in that process of sending out the email blast to midwives all over the U.S., our team actually went through state by state trying to, to mine those email addresses since there's not one big list other than maybe from NARM, but that would exclude all the non-CPMs and also they don't want to give that list to anybody. So we had to do it ourselves. And in the end, it was really shocking. We could only come up with 1500 email addresses and I'm sure we missed some, but even if that's a close approximate of the number of midwives in the U.S., it is like 
just really sad. And as you mentioned too, like there's, there's talk out there of an OB shortage and it's, man, if we have an OB shortage, we really have a midwife shortage. And that problem is so much easier to solve than magically creating a bunch more OBs that probably are not going to even be doing birth in a way that is good <laughs> um, <laughs> system. So that's really cool that you're looking at it from this big picture zoomed out perspective. That's definitely how we operate too. We're, we're looking at the macro level and then doing our micro level work to try to help get there. So that's really exciting. I wanted to ask you, what did I want to ask you about that? Oh, I guess this was on my list of questions I wanted to ask you about. And you had pointed at Bethel as if maybe the, have you had assistants that you're, you've trained work with, with Bethel? You're part of the partnership that will call in assistance for their training based on our client's willingness to have a student because sure. they're just at this time, but we are part of that partnership. Yeah. So we run community birth experiences when we have students, we've been running them in Alaska because that's where we're located and we have the strongest midwife connections. And so this is our fifth cohort of students in Alaska. We've run them in three different regions. This is our third re our third cohort specifically in Anchorage though. And so Bethel jumped in this time with us. And yeah, we have 10 different midwifery practices now participating with us. And Bethel runs the biggest birth center in our practice. So depending on client willingness, our students are getting called by her <laughs> a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the yeah. question for both of you is like, how has that influx of new birth assistants like felt as well, a midwife? Perfect. And then also how has it been to be a part of that project and that training? This is her first, this is her first summer. We just started in June. So yeah, right. it's been just, you've had what, maybe a couple students come in? My bigger concern that I've always mentioned is that once they get certified, they're not like knocking down the door to try and get yeah. a job. So even with the great schooling mm -hmm. and the base that they have, we're not getting people wanting to be apprentices. And so yeah. we're still trying to figure out how to get that next <laughs> level of birth assistants are great. How can we get them actually showing up more, <laughs> which is intriguing. And we've had, this is a funny student thing that we've had. And we see it in midwifery education as well. Excited to join. We keep, how can we support you in this process? And life is happening simultaneously to every student. And it's so funny because we would limit our cohort size so that we would only have so many students for so many births so that our midwives had students to call. And then all of a sudden students would be like, which we knew this would happen. Yeah. I don't think I want to do this anymore. And I'm like, I'm glad you saved a ton of time and money and you figured it out in like less than six months that being on call is intense because our students are, when they're in the cohort of the community birth experience, you miss one call, that's it. You miss a second, you're out and you're done because it's midwifery. And they get that lifestyle kick. But what's funny, same with midwifery students, birth assistant students, retention, matriculating them in retaining them to actually get them into the population and serving has been hard. And then a lot of them also, besides birth assisting, are working other jobs or are doulas. So they're on call. So they want a birth assist, but they're on call for clients. It's the birth world. So it's this, how are we going to take it from getting community experience, getting more birth assistants, working with midwives, staying in, in town, that's probably been half of, half of it. In Anchorage, we have a huge transient population. I think 40% of my students in three years don't live here anymore. So we're trying to edu educate them to help you guys. And they're leaving because we have a military population, and that's what happened. But, but yeah, having students, what do you think, Bethel? Do you like having students at birth? Have you always liked having students involved in birth? Or what is that, what is that like for you? 
I think I do because mm -hmm. I was a student. We were all mm -hmm. a student at one point and somebody had to let me come in. And so I really believe in the each one teach one, that model mm -hmm. of opening the doors for everybody. And while as a midwife, I'm sad when these birth assistants leave or these apprentices leave, I'm also knowing that they're leaving with the beauty of birth. They're leaving with the normalization of what birth looks like. And they're going to go and they're going to expand their the ripple effect into their new community. Whether they work birth or not, they can stand and say, oh, no, that's not true. And I love that when people just hear the truth wherever they go. Mm -hmm. So I don't find it as a bad thing. I just wish more would stay because I like you and then you're gone. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, and that was the biggest midwife concern that fueled us trying to make this program as comprehensive to knock out that first year of apprenticeship learning and experience where you're like, you're getting really good. You're about to become the most integral member of this team. Where are you going? <laughs> what? You're done? You don't want to do this? And this year just dissolves the whole thing. And it's, okay, that's what we want to nail out. We need you to walk in a year in education-wise and skills-wise. And then that year, while you're being helpful, figure out if birth is for you. Because that way, you at least feel like you're bringing something to the team. Because we know, as you know, and we can totally get into this licensure education talk, the apprenticeship model is not funded. It's one of the only apprenticeship models in the United States for trades, as midwifery really has always been. That is not funded. So there is a lot. We are asking and demanding a lot, especially of women, primarily, in the world to take on the calling of being a midwife and then taking on the financial and financier aspect of becoming a midwife and then becoming an entrepreneur and becoming a business owner. So there are, it's not okay. A lot of them can't do it. A lot of them, it's actually, it's impossible. So it's nothing personal. And then unfortunately, a lot of them leave feeling sad because they feel like they failed when really there was no system. It was a crumbling hill that all of these students are falling down. I will say in my three-year apprenticeship, 14 apprentices started and two finished. Me and one other. Yeah. That's, and that's normal. Yeah, that's super. Yeah, I think that's very on on target for so many of the I've talked with people at different campuses and schools and midwives of course too but yeah it's definitely a thing I do what you said Bethel about it's still not a waste ultimately to have you know, the other 12 come through and learn about birth like it really made me think about you know generations ago how that would have just been normal like we all would have just been going to birth and you would see a handful before it was your turn to have a baby and maybe framing it even as the first you know we call them the observes those first 10 anyways and every woman should do an observe phase there we go your early 20s like even if you don't yeah. want to be a midwife if we had more of those people around who just are well, and I think, trusting in the didn't process we, didn't we chat about this too because you do a doula program and one of the things that i've always yeah. wanted to do is run an appear taught in high school teen doula learn about birth program yeah for that early immersion of Man, if this really turns you on, and at least you know what you're getting into if you have a baby soon, if it turns you on career-wise, at least you now know this is normal. People are, I, my goddaughter is 18 now, and she's freaking out. She doesn't know what to do. I was like, girl, I didn't even know midwives were what they were until I was 26. That's how, I had no idea they existed. Please don't freak out. If we can find these peer access, these peer-taught ways in education and exposure without increased burden of cost to the providers, to the yeah. students, the families of, like you're saying, bringing people just back into birth in this normal way, mm -hmm. um, whether it's in schools, peer taught and education, then in general, birth will get better. So all of it does matter. It all really helps. It really does. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've been just segueing into this apprenticeship piece. I just finished a book by, now I'm going to forget his name, the guy who started the Khan Academy, if you're familiar with okay. Khan Academy. Yeah, yeah. It's really amazing. It's called One World Schoolhouse, and it's mostly about elementary and secondary education, but he touches on college and learning for, for going out into the world and actually doing something, trades. And it's really cool. So if anyone's listening and wants to check out an inspiring book around education, especially if you want to start thinking about how some of his ideas could apply to midwifery, definitely recommend it. It's very cool. And a lot of it's stuff that we've already incorporated here at the Indie Birth Midwifery School. And things like we don't do grades, we do asynchronous learning, and then we have weekly to integrate the material, talk with each other. They have time to do, like you said, peer-to-peer education in addition to having us there as a guide. So there's some other ideas from the book that we haven't integrated that I am interested in seeing how we might integrate in the next couple of years. But yeah, apprenticeship, I loved in his book actually that he talked about like that was the way people learned, right? Like everything. Just as we've gotten more increasingly specialized, people started thinking that you go to college and you have to take these set courses and you get this set degree And a point that he made that was really interesting to me is that universities think of themselves as a place to come just expand your learning. But students come to universities thinking they're there to get a job eventually. So there's like this fundamental misalignment of intention and like reasons for them coming and for universities existing. And so this return to an actual like project-based asynchronous because like we have an entire midwifery education sitting on our server if we could Mm -hmm. find a way to get that into more people's hands we could make it lower cost so that it continues to fund our projects and that is ultimately a goal for sure of mine and yeah let's get into it cost and apprenticeship and I'm really curious I know we talked a little bit a couple minutes on our meet and greet about how some of the different regulatory changes have affected midwifery in Alaska (laughs) And that, of course, is something we're always interested in talking about. And yeah. So I don't know where you want to start with that little pile just flopped <laughs> on you. So the board, prior to my being appointed to the board, passed a regulation that said we had to have a meek education to become licensed in the state of Alaska. Yeah. And since that point, we've had maybe one person get licensed, I think. Literally. And that was in 2020, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So it was announced in 2018 that there was going to be consideration of that we had actually, we're going to back up. We're going to back way up. In we're going to take, we're going to take just a five minute little, let's do some history in Alaska, right? And I little, love nothing more. Fantastic. Yes. Perfect. So I can speak to the experience of 2016 Ford from a student perspective and a newly licensed midwife perspective. Bethel, how long have you been in Alaska practicing now with all of this? Yeah, I I was licensed originally in Alaska in 1999, so I had a four-year apprenticeship prior. So I was a licensed apprentice since 95 or so. Okay. So Bethel has a lot more of that history as well. I'll give a rundown of some of the basics. In 2016, we were alerted by our board. There were, we have audits done on our board. How is it? Because funny enough, there are no paid positions, and yet... It costs a lot of money to run a board to be publicly safe. Because what is the function of a board? A lot of people don't understand. The function of a board in the regulation of a profession is to make sure that the profession itself is adhering to its stated what it's going to do so that the public safety is met. 
and that all of this leads to best outcome. But this idea that boards are made for public safety, we're gonna, that's a challenge we've been running into. Do our boards help increase safety or right. is having a board actually making, midwifery more inaccessible and actually creating safety blockade? Totally. And so in 2016, our audit came back and said, hey, you guys need to make some changes. There's a lot that the state's having to do to say you're midwife that we probably really shouldn't be doing. Are there any other things you can use to say, this equals midwife that takes paperwork and money off the state? And we were like, okay, the APRN consensus model had just caught steam right in the middle of 2014, 2015. And APRN consensus, when it went through, we had a bill in 2015 that went through that was like, if you're a nurse mid, we'll use nurse midwives, but if you're an advanced practice registered nurse, they weren't called that then. But if you have a master's degree in nursing with a subspecialty, we're going to call you this one, this name, and you're going to have licensing reciprocity across all states that will acknowledge it so that you can move easily. You can get paid for your credential no matter what state and where they're at in their acceptance of licensure. This reciprocity will increase insurance payments, stability of care access, so that we can mobilize this mid-level professional across the nation. So nurse midwives did this, right? This is what they've been doing. The board came back in 2016, said, hey, you guys need to figure something out like this. Cool, no problem. They did it, we can do it, it makes sense. And the CPM credential kind of for us and that national scope hit a lot of those. How can we, at this point in 2016, look at getting paid by insurance no matter where we go because we know state licensure is so radically different for access to medication, access to practice, practice without getting Anybody can get arrested as a midwife in this nation, but hopefully not getting arrested immediately. And so <laughs> that board recommendation in 2016, I'll let Bethany pick up from here. So that at that time, the board was really pushing the CPM standard mm -hmm. and the bridge program. And it hadn't been CPM equivalent prior to that? It had been like the no. state had made up their own exam or something like Arizona was? Well, we always, we've always done the NARM exam. Like mm -hmm. we actually have our legal requirements are, meet and exceed the CPM standard. Okay. We have about 10 more births where we have a lot more on our board. But the board said we want to do a national type standard. So people started pushing to get their CPM and to do the bridge program. 2018 is when they started pushing for the MEEC accreditation. If we could just have a MEEC accreditation for our CPM standard, you were in. And at that point, all other pathways to education become a certified direct entry midwife in Alaska were null and void, unless you already had purchased a program. So there are a few women who were grandmothered in, but none of them have finished a program. <laughs> so I will, yeah, and, and what Bethel's bringing up, what happened that was pivotal for me is I became, I'm a non-meek educated midwife <laughs> licensed by the state of Alaska, okay? I'm a midwife, but I did not go a meek pathway. I started in 2015. I ended in 2018. I licensed in 2018. It became big talk. Oh, we'll just take, we'll just make it all meek school. And then all the bases are covered. We'll make one statute change. And then we can work on regulations. But making that one statute change will put the board at bay. We'll meet the audit recommendation. So again, let's talk about centering. So we centered meeting an audit recommendation no matter what, instead of meeting an audit recommendation to the T to expand national standard, to the public safety T for the expansion of midwifery. 
So Alaska is a very rural state. It has one of the most diverse populations. It, have, it has huge transients in its population. So a lot of midwives come here and leave to be midwives elsewhere. Mm. It happens all the time. It's very normal in our midwifery population to see that happen. But also it was because you could come here, be very well educated with a non-meat didactic program of your choosing that was listed by the state. I think we included at that point midwife-to-be, via vita, any of the meek schools, of course, but there were some other approved programs that were like, yeah, because people who had worked for a state of Alaska who had helped midwives, who had helped shape this, had shaped those programs. Sure. Sharon Carter, right? Was it Sharon Carter? Sharon Evans, excuse me. They had been in Alaska in the 90s helping form this safety for midwives to practice with certain, certain competencies and stuff, so all good stuff. But taking all of this and saying, it was good when we built it for Alaska, but now we have this national thing where midwives are surging up. How can we help increase movement of midwives and bring in more midwives? And everybody said, we'll just go to me. And as a student in 2018 who just licensed, I was like, whoa, wait a second. I'll tell you straight up. If you had told me in 2015, I would need to pay twenty dollars to $90,000 for a non-accredited fake bachelor's degree to then do this job where I may or may not get paid, buy private insurances and get paid a thousand dollars only by Medicaid to deliver a mom. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Go, what are you talking about? And so it's this, how in the hell can you demand higher economic input from a student base without shoring up on the other side, the actual feasibility of them being able to afford it in the first place. Nurse midwives, only 1% of them serve the community. And this is what people should understand why because they can't get loan repayment in community birth. They can't actually afford their lives as midwives in community birth. And so we just expect midwives to just not get paid. They'll just figure it out, they're women. And it was like, ooh, man, when you said meek only without shoring up being paid on the other side, I'm like, so you're gonna in unethically tell people to spend more money for an education that, again, because what's that divide in college? Oh, they just need to learn more. This is a trade. You can be philosophical as fuck, but if you don't know how to resuscitate a baby, I don't give a fuck about that. This is not college. Right. This is a trade path. And it's this entire 2010 to 2020 choice to push midwifery into a power over hierarchical indoctrination pathway that has, we're sitting in the repercussion of, hey, Bethel, on average between 2000 and 2020, how many apprentice licenses were we getting just submitted a year? Every two years, we have two year licensing cycles. On average, what do you think? Beforehand or during? So 2000, 2000 to 2020 until we changed. I think we said about between seven to 10. Seven to 10 apprentice permits. People applying to, because you have to have an, you have to have a license to apprentice in the state. Under talk about that, because that's so interesting too. <laughs> but mm -hmm. seven to 10. Have on our, I think on our website, on the professional license website, there's four active apprentice permits. And only one of those is an active apprentice. Now. Since 2020. We have had one. We've had one. So I was brought onto the board in March of 2020, so right before the pandemic. But I had decided if our board, so I am a you know, direct entry midwife through the apprentice model, and then I did have an arm, got my CPM, uh, and I did the bridge program. I'm like, yay, whatever. And so I decided to go back to the Mika accredited school to get my degree to see what all of this is about. She did. So, I graduated last year. I took the four semesters. I won't tell you what school, but I can tell you it was a waste of time and money. 
I had no value whatsoever from it. It hurt my heart, particularly because of it was more political bent and more um, I'm hurting your feelings because I'm talking about something rather than this is midwifery care and this is how to handle what comes down our pathway. So I've got all the paths. So I feel like I have a good basis of that's not working, which is why currently we're in a regulation change to change back to any path to licensure. We had to do it by an audit in 2020 that said go to national standards because that was in our audit by the legislation. Our only national standard we have currently is the CPM. But we can do this national standard that says the PET process, which is any route to licensure. So that's where we're in the middle of regulation. But the exciting thing is that when we say we're now a national standard, the national standard includes reaches be back and twins. Because we don't have those in Alaska. We are restricted in trade by legislation, which right. is illegal and an anti, this is an anti-monopoly. So okay. just so you know, it is illegal what's happening in Alaska to us for VBAX breaches and twins. And that's just so fact. Many, so, yeah, so many other states too. Yeah, mm -hmm. so our regulations that we're working on right now will give us VBAX depending on the pushback of midwives. Surprisingly enough, we don't yeah. have pushback from anybody but nurse midwives in the state right now. Yeah, and we had, our board is made up of two direct entry midwives, one OB, one advanced practice nurse, and a public member. We're the only board in our state that has competitors on our board. We don't sit on the board. The medical board. How many are on the board and who are the seats? There are two direct entry midwives, one OB, and one advanced, or advanced nurse practitioner, and one public member. And we're the only board that has competitors sitting on our board dictating to us what we're doing. Our That's previous OP, who resigned, did say on the record, she was approving of us getting VBACs because of the risk of women free birthing without care, who want care, and the risk that they're seeing in the hospitals. She said, you should have this. And then she recused herself from the board. Yeah, it was great. Pushback, probably. Yeah, probably <laughs> because of pushback, but she, it, it was spectacular, honestly, to watch what happened because the OB and the nurse midwife that were on our board we're actually in support of a lot of things we are saying because they understood and they've been working with us long enough to be like, wow, these guys aren't just hedge witches, woo-wooing babies. And, but then when they both stepped down, it was a great show because we actually at that point were like, we're going to go ahead because we had just submit, they had just, the board had submitted paperwork to say, we're going to just bring it to community-based midwives only, community-based nurse midwives, community-based professional midwives, direct entry midwives. We'll have a board. And guess what? We threw that bone out there, and nurse midwives were like, you guys are trying to do what? And an APRN lobby jumped down our shit so quick that we had over 100 letters of support for us getting our VBAC from cons consumers, stakeholders, real humans. That one lobby letter threw the fucking Senate here, the Senate into a goddamn tizzy so that one representative said, wait a second, I'm going to go ahead and talk to this other nurse midwife before I decide. So centering, not the hundred plus letters right. of stakeholders, not all the people calling in and giving testimony saying, this is what's going on. This is why we need this. I'm getting one in three consult calls for VBACs. One in three of my calls are for women looking for care that I am yeah. state restricted. Nope. So they centered one nurse midwife. What happened, Bethel? Everything just stopped? Stopped. Everything stopped. So that also meant that our board is now moving into sunset, which is another restriction of trade. 
And as we're sitting here just talking about it, it just makes my heart hurt because we're talking about the health and safety of our women. And it's not about my trade necessarily. It's about making sure that Susie down the street has the care that she needs, that she has somebody with eyes on her and her baby when she's delivering, if she so chooses. And currently we're not allowed to. If we want to do a VVAC, we have to bring in one of two nurse midwives in the the entire state who will attend a VVAC at home. So if they have room in their schedule and if it works, then Mm -hmm. they will attend. If not, these women are out of luck. And they're going back to the mercy of the hospital. Some yeah. of them. Some a of lot them. of them are. Yeah, it's like just another layer of the hierarchy piece here locally for me. Another way that that looks, not with home birth midwives, was for a long time. I think it's finally shifted. But in the hospital, the nurse midwives were able to take on clients. But at the moment, like in the, as mom's pushing, a doctor would get paged to come in and supervise her. So like the nurse midwives didn't have autonomy. They needed a babysitter to be with them. And so as you're describing that, it's, oh, it's just such a clear indication of what they think about us as home birth midwives. We need to be babysat and we can't be trusted. And we're like the lowest on the totem pole. And it's just so not okay. So beyond not okay. And I have hours and many articles out there about my perspective on licensing. I'm not licensed. I never will be licensed because I just can't, it's just something I can't philosophically like do in my life I get why other people do it and yeah so it's just so interesting to hear some of that like history and like how that's looking on the ground just to be super super clear though so people oh and people are asking questions oh I'll get to the questions in a second but so you had said that pre this meek requirements you were seeing seven to ten people coming into apprenticeship a year in Alaska and it's gone Mm -hmm. down to basically none like one since 2020. Yeah, and that's just so amazing. And it's, yeah, it's really unfortunate too, because when we talk about VBACs specifically, here we're focusing on making sure midwives are smart enough to do the job that they're getting calls constantly to do. That's what the board thinks is safe. But we've been hogtied to serving these VBAC women, but there's been no push to get more nurse midwives in the community. There's been no push to actually shore up the health for the clients while they argue bureaucracy. And, reduce and that the is where cesarean rate. So I'm sorry. And yeah, reduce the primary cesarean rate so you don't have so many VBACs in the first place. So it's this, that's fine if you want to debate it's not fine and I'm so sick of justifying I'm good at what I do to people who don't do what I, that's, it's unprofessional and unethical for other professionals to expect that. But we don't live in an integrated system. We're trying to help create one. But yeah, it's been intriguing because actually this year we had to put out a poll. How many midwives are we losing this year from Alaska that won't relicense? That was another question for you. We're looking at an over 10% not relicensing yeah. in our county. Because how much are our licensing fees right now, Battle? $3,800 every two years. $177 a month. I pay $177 a month to serve my community. To serve my community without getting arrested <laughs> or fined. It might be cheaper. The state's so far behind. <laughs> I know and I'm not the, the PMA person but I'm sure I'd be remiss to not mention maybe we should talk about that sometime um, alternative I don't know that anyone's testing that currently in Alaska that I'm aware of but um, okay so you're losing 10% you've got hardly anybody coming in and oh I'll get to these questions in a second but tell us about this apprentice license too is that something that's 
is that is it just paperwork or is that hard to get or what's the process there you have to prove now that you're in a meek school no it's been always part of it because the state of alaska to put hands to you have to have a professional license in possession to lay hands even as a student on a midwife so i don't know and i should say i don't know if massage therapists have apprenticeship licenses because they're also touching people but with the state of alaska you have to have hey, I'm working under a licensed midwife. And also it keeps the, the legal liability aligned of student preceptor role. So if anything happens in a care situation, all responsibility will fall on the preceptor who legally aligned with the student to perform teaching, the learning of midwifery, the apprenticeship. Whether or not, I don't understand why we do it. It's whatever. Again, if we could reduce barriers to access, so that we could increase matriculation, so we could start serving more families that are calling more and more. I don't, again, safety is, I guess, a relative definition for some. All of our apprentice licenses to apply, you have to list your school that you applied for. So currently you have to list your Mika Credit School that you have been accepted into. And a lot of people do it. So we're not doing that. Before it was like, yeah, I'm doing Via Vida, done. But now you have to list this and be accepted into that school. Okay. And so that's why no one can afford that. Yes, yeah. they're, they're being asked to make a, a commitment to an educational pathway that before, before I got my apprenticeship license, so the nice thing about the way it's structured, similar to what the CPM PEP process looks like, is your first 10 births are observation births, and you do not need an apprentice permit for that. And so okay. in my case, I didn't apply for my apprentice permit until about three months into my apprenticeship. And it took a month or two or whatever to go active. And in about that time, I attended my first 10 births. And then my apprentice uh, permit showed up. And then my 11th, 12th, now I'm moving into my assist phase. But it gave me that time, that three to five months to say, because it wasn't just I got called to 10 births over that time. I was in clinic. I was, I was on the same schedule as the midwife I was working under. I was just working with the midwife. I was showing up when she showed up showing up when she backed up, getting more than those 10 births, really. It gave me the lifestyle taste way more of what midwifery, because it's an apprenticeship. Again, it gave me that way more. And if I didn't want to go forward, I wouldn't have had to. And I wouldn't have had to pick a school. And I would have been able to still do all these things. And making that choice about schools when there's one or two that actually can receive federal funding and things like that, that's putting so much on a student who really doesn't know anything possibly about community birth. Because we don't do enough in our education system to show it, even as a career path, nor do we obviously right. stanch the whole thing together. That's what we're trying to do here. You and me, Margo, we're going to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, and that's going to lead to even more people dropping out when they are going, they're being forced to pick a path, pick a position, pick a school before they're yeah ready and at that point. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, someone up above said very exuberantly, tell us the school that you went to, which I won't make you do. And I was just going to add, just pick which one. I've heard it about every single one of them at this point as someone who is doing interviews with people for our midwifery program that are coming from other places or have considered going other places. We hear it all. And so, yeah, just, I think I've heard something similar about pretty much all of them. Sorry, go for it. So it was really, and a lot of the, a lot of the classes was copy and paste from a textbook. And yeah, and as being a midwife in practice for a long term, I like, that's no way you're even learning. To me, copy and pasting about anything is not going to be helpful. I want hands on the ground. I personally like an apprenticeship that they do a little bit, they do hands-on first, and then they do some schoolwork, and they come back to hands-on, and they do their schoolwork, but it's this real 
tag team approach. And personally, since being licensed in 1999, I've had several apprentices, but I've only had one finished. Mm. Yeah. Which happens to be one of my partners, who is my daughter. And so I she really wasn't going nowhere. <laughs> so I, I really couldn't get out. <laughs> we homeschooled. So it was just the process. She knew exactly what it was like. Yeah. And when she started right at 18 and became the youngest licensed midwife in the state. Back. That's so cool. Six years now. So it's been really cool, but to know that hands-on pro process, but she would not have done it if it was a meek education. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, not because she couldn't help, she couldn't do it, no way. It was just like, why? why? Yeah, why would I go into this much debt for something that I have yet to hear glowing reviews about any meek program? Um, people saying, like, I had nobody say this was superior to x y and z and i'm always the first person to say even on interviews for our midwifery school like self-learning self-study is absolutely an option i mostly did self-study i did a chunk of a program that was a distance program but yeah and just referencing this book that i mentioned earlier for people who are just hopping on the one world schoolhouse he kind of paints this picture of post-secondary education where exactly like you just described, Bethel, like you're doing a little bit of the study work, mostly on your own through pre-recorded videos, because why would we reinvent the wheel? Like birth, I always make the joke when people are like, oh, like how current is your midwifery school since it's evergreen, right? Like we have training videos that are there from five years ago. And I'm like, birth hasn't changed a whole lot in five years or five, like thousand years. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure that this is solid info that people can watch on their own time. So that's one piece of it, this asynchronous, either video-based, reading, whatever, podcast, learning. And then, yeah, like talking about it, putting it into practice, using those vocabulary words with peers, and then actually doing it through apprenticeship, like having a much more organic mix, I think is the way of the future. And something he brings up in this book, which is so interesting, is this idea of like competencies exams. So that's essentially what NARM is, right? The CPM exam is a basic entry-level midwifery competency exam. So he wasn't talking about midwifery, of course. He was talking about like physics and math mostly, but you could use it for anything. To have like a standardized exam that people take in let's say physics i don't know anything about branches of physics so i could probably be more specific but right, some physics competency exam you could take it if you went to like my local podunk state university you could take the same exam that someone would take if they went to harvard and you can prove that just as much as they do and you wouldn't have to then go into debt to get this name brand education that basically means nothing other than you're really good at doing entrance exams and getting into colleges like the actual content at Harvard isn't different than the content here. And so his whole thing is making education ideally available for free or extremely cheaply for anyone anywhere in the entire world using this alternative model that's not based on these like archaic systems. And thinking about midwifery, it's, oh, it, it made me think of the story where I didn't do the PEP process either. I'm not a CPM because I also think it's a load of crap, but it's just a test a bunch of people made up, right? I'm sure they worked really hard on it. And so that plays into this story. Actually, I had filled out all the PEP paperwork and when it came time to send it in, I just couldn't do it. And I emailed them and I was like, hey, I don't really want to go through all like the phases and sending it in and you may be auditing me and me having to like try to call that midwife I helped in Utah that one time to get that chart that she probably doesn't know where it is. That sounds very stressful. And I don't even care if I'm a CPM, but I'd love to take your exam because I'm curious how I'd score. It'd be fun. 
and I won't I wouldn't tell anyone I was a CPM after I said this would just be for my own knowledge and I'm happy to pay the 600 bucks or whatever it was and they were just like absolutely not interested that's only for people who pay us the other three thousand dollars and buy into our whole certification that just jogged my memory as we were talking about that and mixing it with this books idea where it's like why not we should let anyone take the cpm exam and if they can pass it then they're they at least have the brain knowledge of a midwife that's what we're saying when we say someone's a cpm like we're also saying that they had this apprenticeship experience, but we could document that in 5,000 other ways that are more creative, like take a picture with a fresh baby at every birth for 50 births, you know, like whatever, <laughs> right? Like, I love it. There's well, gotta you know, be a better way. And it harkens back, and I'm excited to check out this book, and it harkens back to, I'm gonna do a talk about this specifically at the Mid Midwifery Wisdom Conference, which is you gotta look at the paradigm. It's in Galveston in Texas in November, and you have to look at the power paradigms at play. Power over, power under or powerless, and power with. Midwifery, like homeopathy, like chiropractic, like a lot of hands-on healing, Reiki, all of that. This is a power with. This is the healing of midwifery happens because it's based in a power with, to, and from, within exchange. I don't get ahead of a client and pull them and tell them what to do. I don't get behind them and push them towards something they may not want. I stand with them as a person. And here, just by acknowledging who they are, I get to help them unfold their own power. They're already doing it. And I get to be that beacon that says, yeah, I watch women do this all the time. You're a badass. I'm watching it. You're doing it, right? In a doctor, I'm like in the indoctrination model. Indoctrination is power over. When we, ever, when we lost our mid midwives, especially our granny midwives, the slaughter that happened with the AMA taking over at the turn of the century in the 1900s, and midwives were getting killed, really killed, but taken out and replaced by these doctors, how were doctors educated? I think people don't recognize that we didn't have medical schools in America until the 1900s. And it was very, it's caste system based. It's money-based. We people, rich people, would send their kids to Europe to be educated. They'd come back. They teach down. Okay. Now we do it on purpose. Nurse midwives, good job. You bought right in. I love y'all, but shit, like you bought right in. You go away from your hometown. You like a lot of them can stay and work. Thank God now, because online education. But what happened? Midwifery all of a sudden became this nurse midwife under doctors. So now OBs are working in the nation over this last, the 1900s, and they're going out to college. Then they're coming back into their communities. Community care is power with. Why? Cultural match is exactly related to good outcomes. Why? Because I just, I trust you. We come from the same street. We come from the same area, right? When we take people out and we educate them and we put them back in and we expect them to practice power with, after being exposed, educated, and indoctrinated to power over. And then we expect that to work for midwifery and put midwives that have just undergone this type of educational pathway for midwifery outcomes not to tank, midwifery population not to completely fall apart. You are paying attention to the paradigms. Midwifery cannot be boxed. She cannot be sold. She cannot be unapprenticed, unhand-to-handed. It is impossible. You can't learn midwifery from a book, right? And it's about learning how to respect lane. There will always be power over structures. I don't hate OBs, but now if we're paying attention, our OBs, we need them for every high risk case this century, not with right. our low risk cases, right? We need high integration across all systems. 
and respective understanding that we are the experts at normal physiologic childbirth. I don't go to a fucking oral surgeon to get my teeth clean. I go to a hygienist. If you go to a surgeon expecting a natural birth, I'm going to look at you and ask, why would you go to a surgeon and expect something to come out of your vagina? I, I just don't know. I'm asking you. And so we have to start getting this power with versus power over. Because what ends up happening with these paradigms is you get the powerless and overpowered, the sustainable stopgap band-aid that keep destructive systems in play while destroying everything in their wake. This is the concept of white women tears in general, actually, is the idea that, oh no, it's okay midwives, if you're just a little bit smarter, I'm sure that 5.2 C-section rate will just go down too. We just gotta get you more college educated so more moms survive birth with you than doctors. We'll just focus on how you're less and we'll keep putting you in a position where you have to climb a hill What's at the top? We don't know. We're not going to support it. Fuck sure. So don't worry about that. But just keep climbing because you'll be shamed otherwise. And so in Alaska, beautiful that this happened all at this time. Because Beth and I are like, what's the safest route for Alaska? Is it boards? We're now in a sunset. We're literally at a point where we fucked our, we hurt. We hurt ourselves. We have nobody coming in. We're gridlocked to change our fucking statutes now. We're at the behest of when things go in session. We have VBAC moms calling off the chain all week and we can't serve them right and nobody wants to listen to it so why did we involve a power over paradigm called the state in the provision of healthcare service like midwifery in the first place why do we keep trying to make it work like others want it to and it's really that's the midwife's relationship that's the martyr midwife but if we just work harder it'll get better no and all of these midwife apprentices who aren't finishing walking away feeling ashamed that they weren't good enough. It's all bullshit. It's all such a byproduct of this. If we make them feel a little bit less, they'll keep working a little bit harder for a little bit. And the ACEs study said it perfectly. 80% of our healthcare workforce has suffered adverse childhood experiences. If we actually healed trauma, we wouldn't have healthcare providers. So why would they? We also wouldn't have the health concerns. <laughs> <laughs> and where's the money from a healthcare system? Come on. I think that's what's missing from the meek education is the heart. Yeah. There is no heart. There's no passion. There is no, I'm going to fight for this good of this woman and this woman's path because it's really is more self-focused, centered education. And while I'm not like I am, I give way, I just am a giver. So like I'll walk beside you forever and how you call it. But we are missing that. We're putting up so many barriers and boundaries that we end up doing that in our own heart own soul and i think that's mm -hmm. a problem yeah yeah and it's rippled out honestly by the fact and you said it the unethical nature of licensing do you know how free your practice is because you made that choice and it's allowed you to flow with midwifery for it bethel and i have to run into the every day if i took that client i couldn't take others if i serve that one mom that god damn it i know she can be back it she's gonna sneeze that baby out her conviction, that bullshit reason, she didn't ever need that C-section. But if I take one, if I take one mother, the centered mother I want to help, the centered person, and that is, is how power over paradigms work. You only get one, it's all lack, and midwifery is abundance. Everyone deserves love. There's a midwife for everyone. And that lack that you gotta choose, that's patriarchal. That's power over. That as long as you want somebody's ahead of you, you just don't want to have less and you'll keep pushing forward out of fear instead of love.
And yeah, it's hard. I have a crazy question for you. How, okay, so first of all, how many midwives are there in Alaska? Do you know off the top of your head? Roughly? Currently licensed, there are 36 of us. 36. That's not very many. Wow. And they're not all practicing, but that's how many are licensed. Wow, and Alaska's a very big place, as I understand it. I've never been. It is. It's actually cool because on average, we have a 7% community birth rate, which, of course, blows the nation, national average out of the water. It's huge up here. But you know why? Because in the Matanuska Valley, the Palmer and Wasilla area is about 30 miles north of us. It's 20%. Wow. Community birth and home birth and birth center birth is 20%, 30 miles away from us. So we have real tight pockets of high community birth access. Mm -hmm and service and great outcomes yeah. and great and these are rural communities which is so crazy because what's happening right now in the united states over 100 small hospitals closing right now specifically in rural areas per year so it's really beautiful to see in these more rural areas in alaska as much as we don't have a ton of midwives where it's happening a lot we do have good service access because that's the problem if you don't have good service access then things go south yeah my phone's telling me I'm at 10% and I could totally run and grab my charger, but maybe it's a sign that we're nearing the end of our, our conversation here. I guess I had a question. What was it? What do you think would happen? This is just like a theoretical question. What if all 36 of you were just like, we don't want your license anymore. And we're going to do it anyways. Do you want to arrest us all and cause a national scandal? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what would happen. I'm not sure what all the outcome would look like because yeah. we are really good about having insurance and being able to bill insurances and yeah we got the golden goose on that one right now really it would be which is interesting because i think what we need to do is shore up a little bit more of the data about how to maintain the third-party payment structure and make sure we still can get it without the statutory and regulation backup mm -hmm. that's the like how we're going to make them make them pay us or because it, oh go ahead i'm sorry oh i was just gonna say i've just never taken insurance and so it's an interesting thing to me because it's not been ever part of my decision making yeah. process since it wasn't like it didn't exist and actually in minnesota it's not really a thing even though they theoretically can charge insurance bill insurance most midwives don't even when they're licensed here we have really good reimbursement rates here and birth center and i own one and i'm opening another one we have, and I have a home birth practice, and I just noticed that this is a really good stopgap for the moms who are just now leaving the hospital mentality. Yeah, and it has blown open since COVID. Which totally. Is actually, been a really amazing blessing. You know, COVID's like, hey, people are opening their eyes to the healthcare system and yeah. fear and all of that. So they're moving in droves, but this is like their first step. Yeah. And if it can be covered under insurance, by the time you have your third baby, maybe. You're like, I'm paying whatever I need to do. Pay what I yeah. never, whatever I need to. I'm going to grab my phone charger. You're going to come with me through the house. We'd love to take questions. If you have questions from your student audience, I, we don't see yeah. those on our side. Um, yeah. but we'd love to answer anything on that for you. Find my plug. Oh, I'm dropping things. Let's see. What do people ask on here? Uh, not a ton of questions, but I guess that's a really great reminder to people that they can totally type them in while I plug yeah, myself in. and definitely pop out with a client, but I can answer anything here in the next five minutes or so if everybody wants to, if anybody wants to ask questions. But yeah, this is exciting. I love your question, though. 
what would happen if we just didn't pay for a board? None of us licensed, right? That's a fantastic question. If we could shore up a lot of the third-party payment, because again, like Bethel said, it is a good access point for the different populations, especially that we serve in Alaska. If we could shore that up, man, the, the it's if you could in the PMA model you talk about. There's so much talk about that. I actually am hoping in Galveston with the conference in November, we are going to chat a little bit more about what we need on the United States midwifery needs as far as legal education, access, funding, like these, how can we shore it up to almost create it to where our sovereignty as a power? Crap, it cut out. That was a bummer ending to what was a really fun interview that I'd really like to do more in the style of just hanging out with midwives, talking about birth, talking about midwifery and where we're at. So I really hope you enjoyed that. I just wanted to add a few concluding thoughts some threads that I wanted to bring up while we were talking, but didn't get a chance to. And one of them is I wanted to point out that meek accreditation for schools, for midwifery schools, is essentially U.S. government accreditation because it's the United States Department of Education who accredits meek in the first place. Yeah, see if you can keep all that straight. It's super weird. It's a house of cards creating this illusion of legitimacy that is just not real. And I think there were some other awesome takeaways from this conversation, some really great places to keep exploring things like how do we lower the cost of midwifery education and entry into midwifery or just make it accessible even if it's not about lowering the cost? What are some creative ways that we can create more midwives quickly and in a way that really prepares them for this work? Another question that came out of this conversation is how do we offer anybody the chance to demonstrate midwifery proficiency? Why isn't that already a thing? And then there's this alternate question, kind of devil's advocate. Do we need people to demonstrate their proficiency? Is that just some weird Western concept that isn't actually that helpful and appropriate anymore in the new world that we're all trying to create. Another thought that I wanted to just put forth is, and we talked a little bit about it here, but how can we create community-based systems of apprenticeship tracking so we know who has attended what births in what roles so that then the community, so then the community can decide you know, who to call on for help when they want a midwife or someone with them in birth. Yeah, those are some of the main things. Of course, there's always this continued question about how do we abolish licensure entirely, right? Like, how do we help people understand that it isn't making them safer? It's actually restricting access to midwifery pretty much everywhere we look. And then again, conversely, is there a way to do licensure? And that's not a question that I really care to spend my energy on. I feel like I've already come to a place where I have just made the decision for myself to not explore that anymore because I don't think that is possible. If other people are out there thinking like there must be a better way to still maintain this licensure structure, but to do it better, by all means, I encourage you to research, connect with midwives, look at the history Read the books that we have available. There aren't very many of them on this topic. And just, yeah, see what you come up with. 
But if you're like me and you are just totally fed up and you can see exactly how, you know, the powers that be are trying to dismantle midwifery, first with licensure, then with increasingly strict regulations, now requiring meek accreditation, which again is United States government accreditation, and that cost becoming prohibitive, leaving people with huge student loans and extremely poor education. I just got another email yesterday from someone who wants to do the Indie Birth Midwifery School who had been going to a meek accredited program and said that she just feels like she's getting a really shitty education. She doesn't want to waste any more time or money there and is ready to explore what we have to offer. These are all the ways that midwifery is getting picked apart at the seams. And we can either try to sew it back together or we can just create something totally new outside of the structures that are really very new. I really, I think I might've even said this in the podcast that you just listened to, but I really like to remind myself Licensure has not been around that long. It's a creation created by humans and someday it won't exist, whether that's because the sun burned out or because humans decided it was a bad direction to be headed in or a bad institution to continue supporting. It will not always be the case. And so if we start from that place, it's not, it's not set in stone. It's not insurmountable. It's not a given then we open ourselves up to be way more creative in our thinking in terms of what's next for us as midwives and a midwifery community. Those are just some of my concluding thoughts I wanted to make sure I tacked on here at the end since we cut out in that weird spot. And if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to hear from more cool midwives all around the U.S. and around the world, this is something I would like to continue doing, but your encouragement always helps helps me want to make the content that you all enjoy. So that's it for me. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please hit the subscribe button and give this podcast a five-star review. For more enriching content and conversation around the primal physiological process that is pregnancy, birth, and beyond, please head over to IndieBirth.org. And if you are in the Duluth area seeking prenatal and midwifery support, you can find Margot at DuluthMidwife.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.